I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas, with part nine of David Cayley's series, The Education Debates. Tonight, we conclude the section of the series devoted to thinkers who have challenged the very institution of education, as it presently exists. In the previous two episodes, we looked at the philosophy of de-schooling as it emerged in the 60s, and as it continues today in the homeschooling and free school movement. In this programme, you'll hear first from Frank Smith, a writer who's devoted much of his career to thinking about how we learn. He thinks that much of modern schooling has been based on a profound intellectual error, the belief that learning is primarily memorization. I think if you ask most people in education, most people in, in, in academia these days what memory is, they, they will in fact say it's a storehouse. Now in my view, you know, memory is not a storehouse. Um, in fact, memory isn't a particular process or a particular uh, location for anything. Memory is us. Memory is who we are and how we got to where we are now. In the second half of tonight's program, you'll meet John Taylor Ghetto, the author of Dumbing Us Down, The Hidden Curriculum of Compulsory Schooling. Ghetto was a celebrated teacher in New York City schools for 30 years. He now writes and lectures about compulsory schooling as an instrument of domination. If forced schooling were an institution that had any real justification, it would have appeared somewhere in human history prior to the uh, middle of the 19th century, and it doesn't. It just doesn't appear. Churches appear, armies appear, kings appear, but schools don't appear. John Taylor Gatto and Frank Smith, tonight on part nine of the Education Debates by David Cayley. In the April 1995 edition of the Phi Delta Kappen, a widely read American Journal of Education, an article by Frank Smith appeared. It was called, Let's Declare Education a Disaster and Get On With Our Lives. The disaster is that educational theory has turned learning into a fetish. Learning, in Smith's view, is an outcome, a result of meaningful experience, not an industrial process into which we can feed whatever we like. School, he says, is based on a false theory of learning, a theory of control, and that is not how people learn. Frank Smith is a Londoner who left school himself at 15. He did a stint in the Navy and then spent a number of years in the newspaper business as a reporter and editor. He was 33 before he went to Harvard to pursue an interest in language and in learning. Later, he taught at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education and at the University of Victoria. He's written extensively about reading and writing, and many of his ideas have become part of what is labeled the whole language approach to reading. Smith, however, is skeptical of labels, saying that they tend to become ideologies and lead to simplification, misinterpretation, and confusion. In his most recent work, The Book of Learning and Forgetting, he has taken on what he calls the official theory of learning, the approach that he thinks has made education a disaster, and contrasted it with his preferred approach, which he calls the classic view of learning. The official theory is that learning is hard and requires careful organization. The classic view is that learning is as native to us as breathing. 
We do it easily, and we do it all the time. I, I was always astounded that all of this learning that we seemed to do so effortlessly out of school got so difficult once we got into school or got into uh, university. And what I discovered, of course, was that we continued learning and we learned all the time when we went into educational institutions. The point is we didn't learn what we were expected to learn. People thought that we'd learn all masses of facts and uh, particular skills in, in particular areas and abilities like reading and writing and the rest. But in fact, what kids were learning was attitudes towards these things and attitudes towards themselves. Uh, the learning is there, but we... We ignore the learning that actually takes place, and we focus all our attention on the learning that isn't taking place. What kids are learning when they aren't learning their lessons, Smith says, are attitudes to themselves and to the subjects they're being taught. The reason, he thinks, is that we learn not as a task, but by identification. We learn what fits our sense of who we are and who we want to be. We actually learn, I think, to become the kind of person we see ourselves as being. We identify with other people. And so if, if you see yourself as belonging to the community of writers, then you'll become a writer. You will write, uh, you will learn from writing, you'll learn from reading, you become a writer. But if your experience in school or outside school teaches you that you can't write, if you attempt to write a poem and somebody says to you, look, 17 spelling mistakes and your punctuation is all wrong, you'll, not, you'll never be a writer, then that's it, that's what you learn. We're terribly vulnerable because we learn from the way people treat us. We learn from our experiences. This is what school should be. School should be a place where kids have particular kinds of experiences, the kinds of experiences out of which we know they would develop into particular kinds of persons. So you shouldn't go to school in order to study reading or writing or arithmetic. You should go to school in order to do it. As, a, as an apprentice, if you like, to the teacher, or as an apprentice to, uh, reading is incredibly important, uh, as an apprentice to the author of the books that you read, or, or to characters in the books that you read. Anywhere where there can be some kind of identification, where you can say, this is the kind of person I am. What you learn inside school and outside school is the kind of person that you are. That's what you learn. And school should expand the the boundaries of the kind of person that we see ourselves as being. School should be the kind of place where you can have experiences that you very probably wouldn't have in the world outside school. In the book of Learning and Forgetting, Frank Smith epitomizes the classic view of learning by a familiar proverb. You learn from the company you keep. This company, as he has said, can include characters in books and their authors, as well as our actual acquaintances. What we learn from the company we keep from our experiences simply becomes part of us. We can also learn by memorization on command, he acknowledges, but this learning is always fleeting and ephemeral. Two kinds of things go on with learning. One, which is the core of this classic view, is that learning is growth and that once you've learned, that's it. You're stuck with it. It may not be constantly in your consciousness, but it's there. It will come back when you need it and it will color all of your behavior and your values and your judgments. That's one. The second thing is, indeed, memorization. I mean, we have a short-term memory, and we can put things in there and hold them for a brief period of time, for as long as they're sort of relevant to us until we take an examination or a test or whatever, until we recite what we want to do at, a, at an interview like this. But, but afterwards, it goes. It, it's very transient. 
I mean, there, there are a number of basic physiological differences between things in short-term memory and things in long-term memory. Uh, short-term memory seems to be bioelectrical activity, and you know, long-term memory seems to be chemical change, you know, actual change in the structure of the brain. Smith argues that the official theory of learning, the idea that we learn as a task rather than by an expansion of ourselves, grows out of the metaphors we use for memory. Misled by the technologies we use to store information, we come to think that our own memories must be of the same kind. I think if you ask most people in education, most people in, in, in academia these days what memory is, they, they will in fact say it's a storehouse. Memory is a place where you put away little nuggets of information that you can draw on in the future. And, and of course, the computer technology that we use so much these days, you know, metaphorically, is, um, induces us to, uh, encourages us to, to take this point of view that memory is a kind of storehouse that we're not using all the time, but when it's useful, we'll go into it and pull something else out that we need. Now, in my view, you know, memory is not a storehouse. Um, in fact, memory isn't a particular process or a particular uh, location for anything. Memory is us. We live in our memories. We can't separate ourselves from our memories. Take our memory away, we're nothing. Memory is who we are and how we got to where we are now. Smith's theory of memory supports his idea that we learn from what happens to us and not from programmed instruction. The idea that learning has to be organized as a series of tasks goes back to the first half of the 19th century when the idea of a mass system of education originated. Its first model was the Prussian army, as it was reorganized after its defeat by Napoleon in 1805. Smith describes the process of this reorganization as follows. They selected recruits of the same age, height, weight, and experience, put them into separate barracks, subjected them to remorseless discipline and drill, threw out the ones who couldn't make it, and forged a totally standardized, predictable, and reliable product the Prussian soldier. It was while serving as a Prussian soldier that Frederick Froebel, now remembered as the inventor of the kindergarten, first dreamed of what he called the Universal German Educational Institution. The success of the Prussian army led to the adoption of its methods in education. Prussia became a mecca for school promoters, like Edgerton Ryerson from Canada and Horace Mann from the United States. The traces of this militaristic origin, Smith says, are still visible in the vocabulary of education. Common words like deployment, recruitment, promotion, drill, and strategy all reveal it, as do learning targets, batteries of tests, and various sorts of campaigns. None of this, Smith says, was present before the 19th century. Up to about 150 years ago, the prevailing view of education was that you learn from the company you keep, the classic point of view that I've been talking about. That if you want your child to be a musician, you send your child off to the conservatory. You want your child to be a fisherman, you send your child to sea. If you, um, if you want your child to have a particular craft or a particular skill, then you sign your child up as an apprentice to a, to a craftsman, or you try to get your child into a particular guild. It was understood this is the way you learn. You don't learn by standing back from something and hearing about it, you learn by being involved in it. And um, I think the first thing that happened, and it didn't just happen in education, but the first, thing, the first thing that happened in about the 1850s was that people decided that education and agriculture 
and uh, manufacturing needed to be systematized. Uh, it wasn't a question of changing the machinery in order to fit the um, individual, but changing the individual to fit the machinery, you know, getting them to you know, work the way the machinery worked in the cotton mills and in the mines and so forth. And in agriculture, uh, the, the idea that if you really want to raise cattle, the idea is to get them all at the same age, put them all into the same confinement sheds, give them exactly the same food, and then they're all going to turn out in exactly the same state at the end. I, I think it's, it's indicative that um, uh, the, the whole notion that the best way to breed chickens is to put them into batteries you know, came into agriculture at the same time the whole notion that the best way to educate kids was to put them into batteries and treat them to batteries of tests uh, came, came into um, schools. And so education started to get organized, first of all by putting walls into classrooms so that older kids couldn't interact with younger kids, which I think was a tremendous social change because outside school it's the older kids who always teach the younger kids. I mean, that's just the way of life. Um, uh, we, we talk about organizing children on the basis of age and ability as though that's the uh, highest ideal of education. But in fact, I think what we're doing is organizing kids on the basis of inexperience and inability to help anyone else. We, we're organizing them on the basis of ignorance, as though the ideal classroom situation is when no child can help any other child in the classroom. And in fact, they're discouraged from doing that, as you know, because that's called cheating. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. I know. It's, um, but it's passing strange just the same. Yeah, well, no, people thought, as they still do, that the, the best way to teach anybody anything was to segregate the individual, to lose the individual in the group and then segregate that group from other groups so that, in fact, everybody, the teacher and the students, could get on with the serious business of learning, which was memorization. And the only way that it would work would be for everybody to be at exactly the same spot at the same time which is, of course, the antithesis of the, um, of the classic view of learning. Education, at this point, had sorted the children into standard groups, but had not yet organized its subject matter in a scientific way. This was the goal its organizers began to pursue next. Until that point, there was no theory of learning, or if you like, the theory of learning was that you learn from the company you keep. Um, but what they wanted was to make learning scientific, and in order for learning to be scientific, you've got to have something you can measure, something you can count, you've got to have a unit, you've got to be able to conduct experiments. Nobody had any idea of how you could do any of these things. As we've been saying, uh, it was recognized that learning was a function of interest and um, comprehension, interest and past experience. But people differ all the time on the basis of what they're interested in and past experience. So how could you possibly compare people on any aspect of learning without some, um, in fact, getting all your data muddied by um, what they are particularly interested in and by p what they particularly have um, a lot of experience in. And then it was all solved. It was all solved by one man. And we know exactly who was responsible for this. He was a psychologist. Um, he was a Prussian. Um, his name was Hermann Ebbinghaus. And um, he, he tackled this problem of how psychology, psychology itself, wanted to become a science, so they needed something they could measure. So he tackled this problem of finding something in learning that was not contaminated, that's the scientific word, we still use it today, that's not contaminated by past experience or, um, or interest. And Ebbinghaus had this enormous insight that apparently is one of the few scientific discoveries or claimed scientific discoveries that was totally original, totally unique. There was no predecessor for this idea, which would make one suspicious, wouldn't it? But uh, 
Ebbinghaus came up with this brilliant idea that if you want to study learning without contaminating your data with past experience, comprehension, and interest, what you do is study how people learn nonsense. See, if, if you study nonsense, nobody, by definition, can make any sense of it, and nobody has got any interest in nonsense. It, it's pure. It's unsolid learning, according to Ebbinghaus. Ebbinghaus, like Froebel, had been a soldier in the Prussian army. He had fought in Prussia's successful war with France at the beginning of the 1870s, and then had gone to the University of Berlin as a philosophy instructor. To construct his laws of learning, he created lists of meaningless syllables and then studied his own efforts to learn them. Incredibly, he shut himself away and, um, for two years and he looked at how long it took him to learn these meaningless syllables in groups of 10 or in groups of 12. How many learning trials and how many repetitions he required. And what he got, which is what delighted him, of course, was lawful results, predictable results. And you can, this, this applies all over the world. You can take a group of people in Africa, a group of people in China, a group of people in, in Britain, give them a meaningless learning task, and they will perform in exactly the same way. They'll learn the first two or three items pretty quickly. After that, it takes more and more time to learn successive items until you reach about 10. When it flattens out, you've gone as far as you can go. It's called the learning curve. You can uh, attach an algebraic formulation to it, a uh, formula to it. It's the learning curve. And it's all based on nonsense. Uh, you could push people up the curve. It's the origin of the contemporary view that if a child doesn't learn something the first time, teach it to them a second time, teach it to them a third time. You can push them up. Learning is work. If people are working hard enough, if they're properly motivated, if they're given the right rewards, you can get them up the curve. So this is the main sequel to Ebbinghaus, the idea of difficulty and repetition? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that, that repetition will result in learning and that you can ensure learning by simply pushing people up. But you see, it had uh, this wonderful advantage to the organizers of education, not to teachers, but to people outside education who wanted to organize it, in that there were units that you could count, units that you could measure. So you could say, this child has learned seven of these things today, and this child has only learned five. And, that was, and that, very quickly, that was all that um, attention was paid to in the classroom, the ability to perform this nonsensical task. And once again, if kids could make any sense of what they were supposed to learn, the vocabulary items or the punctuation items or the spelling or something, that it was regarded as akin to cheating because they had some kind of advantage. They didn't have to work to do the learning. But incidentally, you should remember, <laughs> you should remember, Ebbinghaus uh, discovered two things. You know, the first thing he in discovered was this learning curve that you can push people all the way up the curve, which psychology has never forgotten and education has never forgotten. But Ebbinghaus also discovered that there was a forgetting curve, that immediately after the last learning trial, immediately after the last repetition, you started to forget. And the forgetting was precipitous. Just as you got up the first two or three items pretty quickly, but then it was progressively more time to getting the, to to learning the rest. So once you started to forget, once you stopped rehearsing, once you started to forget, you forgot half of what you'd learned you know, almost immediately, and then the rest of it just sort of tailed off. But everyone overlooked this aspect. Everyone forgot it. Yes, yes. <laughs> but it's guaranteed, and everybody knows this. Everybody knows that you can cram for an examination and push away more or less what you want for the exam, but then the moment you take the examination, then you start to forget it. 
The adoption of psychology's scientific theory of learning changed education, Smith says. Whole, meaningful activities were replaced by lists, dates, exercises, and other segmented tasks. The rituals of instruction became more important than the experience of the students. And teachers became experimenters who needed to be able to test their results. The big thing that came along that really hammered psychology's crazy theory of learning into education was the testing movement. Because testing and the official theory of learning go hand in hand. You know, what testing needs is a small unit that you can measure, that you can count, that you can compare and contrast. And these days, heaven help us, you know, publish the league tables for how schools are doing on this matter of systematic, nonsensical learning. And you've never been able to separate the two. Uh, even today, you know, President Clinton uh, decides that he's going to be the education president, do something else. You know, what is he going to do? More tests. You know, what does Tony Blair do in Britain? More tests. What does every provincial government in, in Canada do when they say they're going to improve education? They devise more tests. And the tests and the curriculum are locked together in this progressive, fragmentary way of learning or trying to get kids to learn memorization. And it's all doomed to get us nowhere because the forgetting follows immediately. But the tragedy is that the actual experience of trying to learn and the actual experience of passing a test or not passing a test is something that we can never forget because we learn that in the classic way. It changes us as a person. Once this mechanical teach and test cycle was established, Smith argues, it tended to perpetuate itself. If it didn't work, it must be because either the students or the teachers were doing it wrong. Ever since then, I think people who've tried to control education have said, have first blamed teachers and said teachers aren't doing it properly, and second, saying, well, we're not having enough of it, so we need to have more of these little programs that hand out little bits of the time, more of the um, rewards and incentives and motivations and little punishments to ensure that kids attend to this work and do this work and get it. More ways of punishing teachers, more ways of ensuring that teachers keep doing this. All of these people who produce educational programs uh, which never succeed blame teachers or blame students and say, we just need more, we just need more. It was this tendency to intensify the application of the official theory of learning whenever the schools were perceived to be failing, that led Smith to declare education a disaster in his Phi Delta Kappen article in 1995. The only way to get off this merry-go-round, he reasoned in his essay, would be to abandon the whole enterprise rather than trying to refine it or fix it. I was arguing that education had got beyond the point where it was a problem. I mean, people always talk about the problem of education, uh, which can then be patched up. I think we've been doing this for far too long, it doesn't work. What we have is a disaster, and we have to save ourselves. Teachers have to save themselves, they have to save their students. Students have to save themselves. Is this disaster more evident in 1995 than it was in 1975? I think so, yeah. yeah. 35? Because, yes, because the only thing that is, is consistent over this entire period is the build-up of control, of external control of education. More and more influenced by more and more people outside classrooms. I mean, the big uh, changes in education don't come from teachers. The changes in education come from outside, and teachers have to adapt to these. And I, there's more and more control until, you know, one might think that eventually the whole system would become so top-heavy that it would be recognized that we'd better give the job back to teachers. 
You see, I see the problem in schools not with people, not with teachers, but with taking uh, all initiative and all autonomy away from people and putting them into the procedures that are devised by people outside the classrooms. Now, I think it's reached uh, disaster proportions. But this doesn't mean that I, you know, I, I don't want to take the analogy too far. It's not, I mean, the Titanic sank, it would, but I'm not suggesting that we abandon schools or set fire to schools or something like this. I think what we've got to do is recognize that the educational system itself is not working, and nobody's claiming that it's working. Even the people who want to control it have to admit that their efforts to control in the past haven't worked. And save what is critical about education, which is the relationship between the teacher and the student. Why is that what's critical? Because learning is a social activity. It, it's, it's, it's the classic view that you learn from the experiences you have with people with whom you can identify, with people to whom you can apprentice yourself. And this is what's been taken away. All of the social interaction in schools has been removed. So kids don't help each other anymore, teachers don't help kids anymore, teachers don't help each other anymore. And all of the control has been put in the hands of people and systems, bureaucrats and, and, and experts outside the classroom. The way to put education back into the hands of teachers, in Smith's view, is to abolish the official theory of learning and all its apparatus. The proposal sounds revolutionary, but he believes it could be realized one step at a time. The key would be to reestablish the classic view of learning. Then, he says finally, the way people naturally are would become an advantage instead of a disadvantage. And nobody has to tell us we've got to make sense of the world. We look for consistency, we look for conventions, we look for reasons why other people do things. We look to make sense of the world. And that's what drives children to make sense of language, to eventually to make sense of reading and writing and mathematics. Kids want to understand the world. We do not enjoy confusion. We do not enjoy not understanding where we are and why we're there. But the second thing is we have this remarkable ability to, in fact, make sense of the world. We also have a remarkable ability to empathize with other people and to help them make sense of the world. You just have to look at how people carry on in situations outside school to see how they will help each other, um, how they will try to make things clear to each other. If somebody's struggling with something, they try to help them to do it. I, I, I think that we all feel uncomfortable if we see someone who is confused. We all feel uncomfortable if we see someone who is beaten down by a particular situation. We're all natural teachers. We all want to share our enthusiasms. We all want to share those things that fascinate us. Yeah, I, I, my, my confidence, basically, is that being a person is a good thing. Frank Smith criticizes the way schooling has been structured, but still thinks that the institution could be remade to fit a more realistic account of learning. American teacher John Taylor Gatto, whose thoughts I'll be presenting in the balance of tonight's program, takes a darker and more political view of the school institution. He believes that in his country, over the last hundred years, mass compulsory schooling has functioned as a counter-revolution turning the free, self-reliant people who emerged from the American War of Independence into a pliable, unthinking mass. John Gatto, I should say at the outset, 
is a heretic, a passionate dissenter from the religion of schooling. But he has surprising credentials, having been a teacher in New York City for many years, and latterly a very celebrated one, winning New York State Teacher of the Year honors in 1991. He got into education in the first place, he says, almost by chance. I had been an advertising copywriter, and uh, I borrowed a teaching license and did some substitute teaching uh, because I had had a belly full for the moment of, of copywriting, and I wanted to see if, uh, if I could learn something about myself from school teaching. I mean, there was no great calling. Uh, and so since New York City had... Uh, no particular concern about whether I was actually who the license said I was. Uh, I subbed for a while and, and found it intriguing that the schools that I encountered uh, were obviously involved in some slowing of, of normal mental growth. Uh, I don't know if I would have put it as succinctly of that at the time, uh, and let me give you a specific, I was assigned to teach a Spanish course, and uh, <laughs> I don't think they had any idea whether I spoke any or not, and I, but I spoke a little Spanish. So uh, I asked the kids what they'd had so far, and apparently they had nothing. I said, well, I'm going to teach you how to tell time. And inside of uh, one class hour, everybody could tell time in Spanish. Well, Word got back to the administration. I was hauled on the carpet and uh, literally screamed at. And I was told that I had destroyed the entire curriculum for the month of June, which was to teach them how to tell time. A and I was baffled. Uh, I said, but it only takes 15 minutes. Uh, so I wasn't hired back at that, uh, that place. But I would encounter this over and over again, uh, problems that, weren't problems at all. The problems were necessary to justify the apparatus. And again, I, I won't claim any, any any great wisdom about this. It's just I had a natural young man's antagonism toward uh, stuff shirts and, and, and stupid people. So I decided to stay in teaching for a couple of years and see what was possible bringing uh, Western Pennsylvania sensibility to uh, New York schools. And I, I, I got in way, way over my head. It was quite wonderful. Because how many young men are, are given any responsibility to speak of? And here was more responsibility than you could dream of, as much as you wanted, in fact. You had this sovereignty over 120 lives, so... So one thing led to another, and uh, after 30 years, I, I left teaching. John Gatto noticed from the very outset of his career as a teacher that the schools in which he worked seemed to inhibit their students intellectually. The obvious corollary was that students were capable of much more than was normally asked of them. So he decided to see how far he could go. The first thing you had to do was not look at the records or the data that had been accumulated on these kids. And, and, and you simply pitched the lesson and its particles on the highest level you were capable of. And you tried to see whether uh, 
whether the kids were were adequate to swim in that water. And I found right just right away that they, in fact, are. Once you get past the, you know, the idiomatic differences between a Western Pennsylvanian and his late 20s or early 30s and, uh, you know, a 13-year-old Manhattan kid, that takes a little while. But after that, all of us are fascinated with ideas, especially kids. What we call outstanding adult performance is, is accessible to almost any 13-year-old. We don't have an economy or a society capable of accommodating what human uh, beings are capable of rather easily and very inexpensively. I mean, none of this costs a nickel. John Gatto conducted his classes as university-style seminars, emphasizing dialectic or the logical examination of ideas. Over the course of his career, he worked in three different schools, one upper middle class, one with kids of mixed class and ethnic backgrounds, and one with poor kids in Harlem. The differences, he says, were hardly worth noting. Even the poorest kids, he came to feel, had the same intellectual potential as those at the pinnacle of the bell curve. But what finally defeated him, he says, was the attention his success attracted. I got too famous. Uh, I, the only way I was able to operate uh, as a guerrilla school teacher was essentially to keep a low profile, to pay off some of my uh, potential enemies like custodians or, 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 or the most potent member of any building. But whiskey usually works with a custodian, and, and just treating them with respect, uh, setting uh, other political enemies against each other in uh, ways that would take too long to go into. But, but in order to do that, I had to have a fairly low profile. With a low profile, I was able to take the 100 or 130 kids I got every year and actually write an individual curriculum for each one of them with the help of their parents whenever I could get that or older brothers. Uh, so my kids were shooting around like popcorn popping all over the city of New York and even all over the state of New York and New Jersey. And if I say nobody knew that, the few people who knew about it also saw that it was quiet and they weren't going to get their necks chopped off. But gradually as my kids built up this phenomenal track record and got their names in papers and started businesses and, and more and more film teams and radio teams would come around and eventually I, I, I won these... Uh, these awards, and then more and more uh, film teams would come around, and with the film teams would come official teams looking for the secret of my success. Well, the secret of my success was to uh, write myself a blank check and, be, and to operate in a thoroughly illegal fashion most of the time. I couldn't do that uh, under this constant scrutiny, or at least I couldn't do it without uh, just immense stress. Uh, so finally I realized that my methodology had worked too well, that I wasn't going to be able to use it any longer. And at that point, I was New York State Teacher of the Year, and I, I resigned on the op-ed page of the Wall Street Journal 
on July 15th, 1991. My kids, who had, some of my students who had grown up, rented Carnegie Hall for me. And I, I gave an evening concert at Carnegie Hall that November where uh, I was able to offer an audience different ways to look at this process of, uh, of transformation from childhood into adulthood. And I expected that to be the end of teaching. I have a farm in upstate New York. I was going to be a garlic farmer. And I got a call from NASA Goddard Space Center, and the engineers wanted to talk to me. And then I got a call from Apple Computer, and then I got a call from the White House. So uh, I, I said to my wife, you know, I mean, as, long as, as long as they don't tell me what to say, I assumed that would be over in six months, and it's seven years later, and, uh, and it still continues. I don't advertise my lectures and workshops, and, and, and when they terminate, uh, I won't be unhappy. But, but I, I, feel, I feel obligated to, to, to do what used to be called, David, bearing witness. I wanted to bear witness about what I saw in 30 years inside institutional schooling. John Gatto's witness has taken him all over North America as a lecturer and produced a spate of articles and books, including Dumbing Us Down, The Exhausted School, and, soon to be published, The Empty Child. These writings have argued that compulsory schooling teaches a hidden curriculum that is much more powerful than its overt subjects. This curriculum produces estrangement between students, frustration, weak powers of expression, alienation from tradition, and a sense that one can only learn under duress by certified experts. These effects are evident, Gatto says, in the behavior of students. There are direct pathological effects that rise out of the invisible curriculum of schooling. Uh, there's an indifference to the adult world and its announced standards. There's an elimination of curiosity and concentration there's a difficulty connecting the present to the future. There's a difficulty connecting the present and the future to the past. There's a taste for cruelty and moral numbness that, uh, that is cumulative. And we're seeing now the beginning of what I would expect to become quite an interesting ep epidemic. As one boy said to me day before yesterday, uh, when I said, well, you know they're going to take your guns away from you. And he said, I don't need guns. He said, $5 worth of gasoline uh, poured down through the uh, air ducts, he said, will do a better job. And he's right. Or will we then uh, ration gasoline? To, uh, there's an uneasiness with intimacy and candor. Uh, there's a disloyalty to family and friends. Uh, children become obsessively materialistic, and finally they become dependent, passive, and timid in the face of new situations. And all of these effects are the product of schooling, but, but the subtle part of this, David, is that all of these effects are extremely useful in 
in making a, a, a mass production economy and a highly organized, uh, highly layered society uh, self-justifying. You point and you say, well, how could you trust these people? Or do you really believe that uh, those broken uh, men and women can take care of themselves without, uh, you know, interventions, uh, a whole variety of them on the part of uh, trained experts? So you create the situation that justifies the order we have. I mean, it's an, um, just an immense problem. Uh, there's almost no way that you can see to enter that system and alter it except temporarily and cosmetically. Uh, I don't think change will come from leaders debating things to do. How would you say these effects are produced? Why indifference to adults as a result of schooling? Why diminished curiosity? All right, let, well, let's take Why indifference cruelty? for a moment. Uh, suppose, suppose that you and I, uh, over a pitcher of beer or uh, iced tea, uh, whatever, suppose you and I decided to create some structural way to make young people indifferent to everything. And suppose we came up with the idea that we would enthusiastically launch them on an hourly basis on one or another project of art or thinking, and then we would ring a bell and say, you must stop and move immediately away from this. And we did that for, for year after year after year. Would that not produce an, an internal mechanism that said nothing is worth finishing and if nothing's worth finishing isn't the the the, the logical next step that very few things are worth beginning and all the enthusiasm of adults in starting is contradicted by this bell and then the adults adamant insistence that you stop doing what you're doing i mean <laughs> It's a system of animal training, and I would expect it to work with almost anyone who didn't have an outside source of wisdom. So I would expect it to be cumulative. Each generation would be worse than the generation that preceded it because each adult component of a generation would have less and less memory of a better way. John Gatto traces the story of how the United States got this system of education back to the turn of the century. A booming industrial economy had generated vast new fortunes and a new ruling class made up of those who had gained these fortunes. This new economy demanded a manageable citizenry and a system of mass compulsory schooling was seen as a way of achieving this end. Those who planned and promoted this system were often disarmingly frank, at least by today's standards, about their intentions. An influential University of Wisconsin sociologist called Edward Ross wrote plainly in a manifesto published in 1906 called Social Control. Plans are underway, he said, to replace community, family, and church with propaganda, education, and mass media. Around the same time, 
John D. Rockefeller's General Education Board laid out its mission. Its dream, the board said, was to have people yield themselves with perfect docility to our molding hands. H. H. Goddard, who was then chairman of the psychology department at Princeton, pronounced government schooling to be the perfect organization of the hive. In John Gatto's view, the system produced by these designs has undermined the civility, the intelligence, and the independent-mindedness of Americans. Young Americans today are kept in a state of frustrated dependency. Adolescents of an earlier era, he says, were far more competent, far more enterprising, and far more attuned to their world. Thomas Jefferson was running by himself, both parents dead, a 2,500-acre farm with 250 employees at the age of 13. George Washington didn't go to school till he was 11, and the first subject he studied was trigonometry. He then became a crackerjack surveyor by the time he was 13, and by the time he was 17, he was the official surveyor for uh, Culpeper County, Virginia. Admiral Dewey, who was the first American admiral, sailed a warship from Peru to Boston in 1815. It was a captured British warship. He was the only one available. He was 12 years old. He was the captain. He had two guns on, and when the British captain appeared above deck, he told him, Sir, he said, you will be dead if you do that again, and thrown over the side. He was 12. Thomas Edison had a newspaper business making big bucks when he was 12 years old, he was reporting Civil War news to passengers on long-distance trains between uh, uh, the lower peninsula of Michigan and the upper peninsula. Uh, he had access to a telegraph. He had the war news first. He sold it for a dime to a quarter. Sometimes he would sell a 1,000 copies at a stop, you know, making in one hour what an adult working man would make in several months what the resourcefulness of these admittedly remarkable boys reveals to John Gatto is how much young people are capable of when they are not kept apart from their society. Schooling existed in their world, but it had not yet become a monopoly. It was still diverse, occasional, and quite circumscribed in its aims. There was a great many... Uh, types of schooling available in the United States, a whole uh, artist's uh, palette of types. Uh, they would run uh, typically 12 to 16 weeks a year, a couple of hours a day. The, the standard was uh, the one-room schoolhouse, which is an immensely, if you're going to school at all, it's immensely efficient to mix together uh, ages because the responsibility, the necessity, has to be granted to children when you do that. Now, no one can manage six or seven ages mixed together. They have to be self-managing, uh, or it won't work. But, but in learning to self-manage and sustaining this uh, institutional form uh, uh, over the years, uh, you know, immense good results from that. In, in human terms, responsible people who, who look out for each other and who know how to do things and who know how to learn things from each other. 
clearly the the school institution we have now is deliberately meant to intercept those possibilities and to mediate all learning nominally through uh, an adult authority called a teacher, but actually, David, I mean, can we really be honest? Uh, the teachers aren't teachers, they're pedagogues. Uh, the Roman word for a, a, an academic slave who never thought in policy terms. They don't create curriculum. They administer a curriculum created by strangers there. I mean, the net effect of this after 12 years with most kids is to create a permanent bell curve of broken people and incomplete people, which is exactly what a mass production economy has to have. It can't survive without incomplete people who, who, who depend on instruction and buy what they're told to buy. John Gatto believes that in the final analysis, schools create this condition of dependency because it fits the social order. However, he does not say that this is an inevitable effect of schooling. Schools could be organized in other ways. As a possible source of alternative principles, he recommends Thomas Jefferson's account of the purposes of schooling. Jefferson was a supporter of government-organized schooling, but only under five stringent conditions. He said the only justification to impose schooling on children is in this order to teach people their rights, then to teach them how to defend their rights. Now, in the world you and I live in, there's not a school we can think of that would dare to teach either of those things to children, including the, the schools that we love and say these are wonderful schools. Uh, the third thing Jefferson said is to teach children not to be intimidated by experts, but to become self-determining. The fourth thing he said is, to teach children the ways of the human heart to such an extent that they can't be cheated or fooled. And the final thing was to teach them useful knowledge. And he gave these examples, how to build a house, how to build a boat, how to grow food, how to ride, how to hunt. And we could go on, I think, for quite some time. Well, what I did in my personal curriculum for most of 30 years was follow Jefferson's prescription. In his public appearances, John Gatto continues to promote this Jeffersonian ideal. He wants to restore sovereignty and self-rule by individuals, families, and communities, and he wants to encourage real variation between them. To him, this means an end to uniform schooling and a recognition that there are as many ways to grow up as there are people. I see as hopeful to allow as many varieties of schooling without any censorship at all as the human imagination and the human heart can devise and, and, and sustain. Uh, I find in, in the, the regathering of sovereignty into personal hands the greatest hope, and I find the greatest danger in the technologization of, of everyday life. 
and the data gathering aspects of government and the need to be able to regulate and predict. I have absolute and utter trust uh, in individuals and their ability to, to live decent moral lives and to take care of themselves. On Ideas tonight, you've heard part nine of the Education Debates by David Cayley. A printed transcript of the series is available for $25, and a complete set of audio tapes for $90. Both prices include taxes and handling. Send a check or money order to Ideas Transcripts, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. Tonight's program was produced by Alison Moss, with associate producers Liz Nodge and Kathleen Pemberton. Technical direction, Dave Field. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. And stay tuned to CBC Radio 1 for the hourly news, followed by the arts today and between the covers. (laughs) 